Hey, everyone. Welcome to my show, my so-called fabulous. I'm Tiffany. Welcome, everyone. All right. We have an epidemic, and it is a big one. It's the opioid epidemic. We've been talking about it for years, and I had to get someone on the show to talk about this because you hear about it in media. You hear about it, I mean, everywhere. It's it's the talk, and we definitely need to solve this problem. So I brought on the show today a fabulous gentleman with so many credentials, Dr. Pedro Franco. I'm going to try this, okay, y'all? Is He is a maxillofacial surgeon. Did I do it right? Perfect. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys today and also to talk about something that I'm very passionate about it, which is how's the way for us as a health professionals to fight the opioid epidemic? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's necessary because I do watch the news and media and see do you call it an outbreak? What do you call this? I mean, it's just an epidemic that's taken over, right? Yes, the problem is uh, the majority of people are dying right now. They are um, junkies. So imagine that you put 175, 200 people every day in a plane and you crash a plane every single day. That will make the news. But because our patients or the people that are dying right now in our country are junkies, we don't care too much about them. What's happening with this epidemic is it doesn't respect social classes, doesn't respect ages, doesn't respect anything. And we're getting these patients or these people dying in our streets. The government has done a lot of, um, you know, wake up calls and things like that, but we need more help from everybody else, especially in the healthcare uh, industry. We have multiple companies involved on this, um, but the problem is that the professionals, which I believe that we are the entry gate or the door that we're going to expose these patients, we're not doing as much as we have to do it. So what's happening is the government is attacking us right now. And I feel attacked because they're controlling the amount of medication that we can prescribe in our patients without educating the health professionals on different ways to control pain. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you have um, maybe somebody in your family, a niece, a nephew, grandchild, grandkid, or son or daughter, that they need to get maybe their wisdom teeth out. Or there are athletes playing football, playing basketball, and they're 13, 14, 16 years old, and they get an injury or they get their wisdom teeth out. So the pain medication that we're going to use for them is going to be an opioid because it's the only pain medication that it can take care of the pain, which is not true. But that's the way that we have been educated. So we're going to give to these patients 12, 20, 30 tablets just to keep them away from pain because the parents, they don't want our children or the children to be in pain. But what we're doing with this is we're creating an addict. Mm-hmm. We don't know which of these patients is going to actually enjoy these medications so much that they're going to keep in pain just to get these medications. So we'll maybe prescribe one or two more refills. And then after that, these patients are going to go into what? Into looking for these medications on the street or changing these medications now for something else like heroin or fentanyl, which is invading our country right now. Invading. And and, and let me ask you a question about that. I'm going to get around to really introducing you, but let me ask you a question about addiction. You say one of your patients may be 18, 32. It doesn't matter race, color, male or female. Are we predisposed to addiction? We are. And we can see or we have seen that with alcohol, 
with marijuana, with multiple things in the past. We had the receptors for opiates in our brains. And what's happening is we're creating this addiction because we have this in our genes. So that's what's happening. That's what's happening. I know. And um, I have so many little personal stories, but I really want to get to, to, to who you are and how you started this. You're from Colombia. How in the world did you decide to be a surgeon? So um, I used to help my dad's uh, dentist during the summers. And I always admired the, the work that he was doing. And he would travel with the Peace Corps everywhere around the world helping people, pulling teeth, and trying to do multiple things for free. So one day I asked him, I would like to be like, like you. I would like to be a dentist, a doctor, and I would like to see how I can help people. So the first thing that he said is, you could be a dentist, but make sure that you become an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, because that's the only way that you can actually help people all around the world if you want to travel. And I said, but you're a, a dentist and you can help them. Yes, but you can do it in a different scale. You can pull teeth in a very efficient way, you can do fractures in the face. You can do cleft lip and palate. You can do tumors. You can do so many things that people are in need all around the world that you can touch more lives. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason that when I went to school, the first thing that I have in my mind is how could I get into oral and maxillofacial surgery training after my uh, dental training so I can become an oral surgeon. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I did it. So I did my training partially in Colombia and then I always wanted to come to the United States. And the main reason is because we have the resources, we have the research, we have the facility, and we have the technological advancements here. So I can advance in my career and be one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. So at that point, that was my, my goal. Um, I was very fortunate that I was able to come here and be uh, exposed to such an amazing healthcare, which a lot of people don't believe that, but I still believe in that America has the best healthcare in the world. And then I was blessed to work with uh, different professors and teachers, which at that point, they were the leaders of so many um, specialties in my field that they exposed me to what I'm doing right now. So I was trained by multiple people that I believe that they're the best in the world and they're uh, big names in my specialty. And you, um, you are 100% in support of not prescribing opioids. And I'm wondering, because I read in your bio and your history, I have researched you so much. Okay. So yeah, right. it's called stalking, I think. <laughs> I but I read that in Colombia, your father was kidnapped by Pablo Escobar. No, ma'am. No, so, no, no. So <laughs> that's my, fake news. No, no, <laughs> it is. It is partially true. So my dad was involved in a kidnap um, situation but it was by uh, a guerrilla movement back in, in the 80s. And um, it was a very uh, hard situation that he taught us a lot of, um, how could we be so grateful for life and things like that when yeah. you can partially be without one of your most beloved family members. Mm -hmm. uh, everything went, went you know, uneventfully. He was back with us, but it was how a situation like that when you're 13, 14 years old come change your life in multiple ways. We grew up um, in the 80s in Colombia facing the drug problem and how um, it changed our country in Colombia, how it destroyed the values of the country and how in the last 20 years we've been reestablishing all those values and getting everything better and stronger. Mm -hmm. Right. And did that make an impression on you of 
stop the addiction, stop the addiction, stop the stop the epidemic that's going on now. Because in your industry and so many industries in medicine are over prescribing. Is that true? Yes. So there are two main two main problems. The first problem is the over prescribing, which you mentioned a few seconds ago. And the second problem is that because we over prescribe, we don't have any program to bring those medications back into a safe place. So grandma gets the pain medications. She may use five from 20 pills that she got. And then the grandkids during the weekend, they go to grandma's home and they see, okay, we have these pills and I'm invited to a fun party in the weekend and I'm going to bring some of those pills so we can get high with my friends and mm -hmm. have a good time. So diversif diver uh, diversification or diversity, that's one of the biggest problems that we need to attack regarding overprescribing, but what are we going to do with those extra medications and who is using those medications? Mm -hmm. And it's when you describe opioids, what is in that umbrella with drugs? I mean, I'm so we can go from cocaine, mm -hmm. uh, morphine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, mm -hmm. and um, multiple other medications that we have in the market right now. Mm -hmm. The most common is hydrocodone. Right. And from hydrocodone, we went to uh, multiple morphine del uh, derivatives that they use. And um, you see what happened back in the 90s and, and people using medications that in other countries, we use those medications so just for patients that are dying from cancer as a palliative care. So somebody that has all that pain from cancer, they get those medications, but they're in the last stages of their lives. And we need to be kind to them to give them those medications to make sure that they're going to at least have a better quality of life during the last you know, episodes in their lives. But for a patient that we're going to do surgery, I don't see why do we need to prescribe these medications when we have multiple options and different methodology to control pain. All right. And what type of surgery do you do? So we do from taking a tooth out, doing extraction of wisdom teeth uh, to TMJ reconstruction, TMJ surgery. We do uh, facial reconstruction regarding removing a tumor and putting bone from your uh, leg into the into the face we do jaw corrective surgery we do facial cosmetic surgery and we do major trauma in the face mm -hmm. right. so the biggest model that every single pharmaceutical company has used in the past for pain control and to evaluate the pain medication efficiency has been wisdom teeth so wisdom teeth is a very painful surgery and because it's in your head in your face you feel that 24 seven. So the funny thing is this one, and I say funny because for the last 15 years, I will go to the international meetings in different countries and I will do a survey of 50 surgeons. 30 of them will be from other countries and 20 will be 10 Canadians and 10 Americans. And the only people that we use opioids for pain management were Americans and Canadians. The rest of the world, they don't do it. They don't use it. And why is that? It's the way that we were trained in med school, the way that we were trained in dental school, the way mm -hmm. the way that we have been trained in nurse, in nurse school. We believe here in America, after a famous paper that was written back in the 80s, um, that opioids were the only pain medication that it was efficient for pain control. And that's the reason that you see 
all those lawsuits to different pharmaceutical companies and things like that, because that was not true. But that was the, the, the way that they told us to control pain. Mm -hmm. And it was a letter to the editor that was published in a, in a famous journal. And everybody thought that that was the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then we went from there. And it was, it was amazing that the pharmaceutical companies, they did the biggest marketing on every single medical dental specialty. So people, in order to control pain, they had to have one of those uh, medications. Right, right. So educating professionals, edding, ed educating um, your patients, of course. So does that education begin at medical school? Does it begin at pharma, the government, the physicians? I mean, where? It should be done in the schools first. Schools. And secondly, um, something that is important is pharma is not going to go into this because pharma is making, unfortunately, money with this. So for them, the profits that they're doing, um, and they just, every time that they get uh, a fine from the government, it's just a little slap in their hands. Mm -hmm. So they they make millions and billions of dollars. So the, the, for them, I don't think that is a priority. They talk, they write the policies, they do things like that, but they don't go beyond that. There are other companies in pharma that they're actually helping us to fight the opioid epidemics. But I believe that it's very important for nursing schools, med schools, dental schools, to change the way that people believe that pain needs to be management. And then going to the public. The good thing right now is uh, we practice in the Dallas Metroplex area. And it's amazing how we're seeing more mothers come into our practice just because we're opioid-free practice. Really? Yes, okay. ma'am. They're looking for that opportunity to do not expose their children mm -hmm. uh, during the surgery for opioids that of is course. not necessary. Because wisdom teeth, my daughter had her wisdom teeth out. Gosh, she was very, very young. Just to prepare for braces, I had mine out at 21 and it was horrific. Horrific. Yes. And you know what I was prescribed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, um, I was going to ask you because... I have um, chronic back pain. I have a horrible spine. I've had multiple surgeries, and I have always had a supply on my hand. And, to, and, I, and, I, and I determined the, the timing when I had someone in my home and they were stolen. I'm like, this is a problem. Now, this is just layman talking. You know what I mean? Like, if why would you steal this? Of course, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just taking it because you know. And I didn't. It made me itch. The side effects were horrific. You know, I was talking to my husband earlier, and um, he had a surgery in Stanford where they broke. He had sleep apnea. Yes. And they opened his air. This is many, many years ago. His, I'm, I'm, you're, you know what I'm talking about. I don't no, know. No, we, we do that. We do that. So we break his jaws. Yes. They broke his jaws in order to actually enhance their way. Yeah. And uh, the guy actually that is in Stanford right now that runs the program is a good friend of mine. His name is Stan Lu, and he does all the surgeries. So um, some of those medications that they prescribe is in the beginning just for breakthrough pain. Mm -hmm. But after that, it is, it is not necessary. And we're doing the surgeries here in Dallas and in Fort Worth, and we do not prescribe those medications. Right. And I asked Greg today, I was talking to you, we were, we were um, talking about you today, and um, he distinctively saying that they cut a piece of his skull out and it was just horrific. And the doctor said, you know, this is, and he gave him the pain medication. He said, but you know, for him, 
he is like, I'm not, the, the side effects were horrible. So he got through the pain and then, but that was a different time now. So if you did this surgery, how are you doing this with this multimodal pain management? Because I read that you're doing that. Yes. Yeah, so what we do is we prep the patient 24 hours before with different type of medications to manage the amount of pain that the patient is going to have. So we prep this so we can control some of the uh, responses that the patient is going to have. And then we numb the patient in the crucial parts of the surgery or the crucial parts of the body that we're going to be working. So we use local anesthesia when the patient is sleeping. And then we're going to use different type of medications like muscle relaxants, like medications that are going to help us for control pain for a long time and is going to keep the patient numb for a long time. So that's the way that we use it. We When we say multimodal is we use different things on that. Also, we ask the patient, when we have the first interview with the patient, so the first consultation, we tell the patient that there are different ways to eat, different type of foods that are going to help you with swelling, with uh, pain management and things like that. So different type of foods, say yes. that one more time. Like what? I mean, I'm intrigued. So we can, we can, we can tell the patients to use uh, medications, I'm sorry, uh, food like pineapple, like orange, uh, any 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 kind of uh, vegetables that are uh, yellow that they can actually give us some bromelain. Mm -hmm. So bromelain mm -hmm. is going to help us for that. The other thing that we use is we use a lot of um, calendula. We can tell them to use Arnica Montana prior surgery as well. So there are multiple ways that we can tell them that. The problem is we're in a westernized medicine country. So when I start talking to my patients like that, they think that I had three horns, <laughs> not even one horn, True. three horns. So they think that I'm crazy. And unfortunately, they don't understand that there are ways that we can help them in order for them to prepare for surgery. I mean, do you have a population that obviously respect your, I mean, your what you're doing, but that really do question the pain management, do Absolutely. they? Absolutely. So I have a, a, a father month and a half ago that he came and he said, I want little Susie to do not have any pain. And I say, sir, I'm going to promise you that she's going to have her pain under management, but we're doing a major surgery. So she's going to have some discomfort. So we start arguing to a point that he wanted for me to prescribe hydrocodone. And he told me that he wanted to have 45 pills of hydrocodone. Based on the state laws, I cannot prescribe that. At the end, I had to look at him and I had to ask him, do you want the pain medication for little Susie or for you? And then I told him, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm not going to be able to take care of you. Right. So at that point, little Susie was not my patient anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But it's better. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. That's fine because you can say no to that for yes, sure. Absolutely. Now, did you come up with this 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 pain management, the system, the multimodal, is that that your model that you determined? We tweak it. We tweak it. So um, a lot of surgeons they have been using this model for a long time, but uh, we tweak it. We tweak it in different ways to use it in the maxillofacial area. So I learned multiple things from orthopedic surgeons, from trauma surgeons, and then we start applying this to the head and face um, facial area. Mm -hmm. So the way that I use it, yes, my 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 way to do it. And I try to teach that to my residents, to my students, and to a lot of my peers that they that they come to my lectures or, or they see me working and things like that. Do you think that the United States is getting better, a better handle on this? We are. 
So, for example, our association, the American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery, with the past six or seven presidents, they have been up in front as a spearhead trying to control this. And every single meeting, national meeting that we have, we have a topic on opioids. How's the way that we can control pain in different way? So I think that multiple associations are working on this, trying to make the surgical, uh, the staff that works with us as well, the surgeons and everybody around more aware of what's happening in different areas. And we have practices in the city and we have practices in the rural areas. And sometimes we get some of the surgeons that they don't want to change at all. And they say, oh, rural areas are completely different. No, we are doing the same for everybody. For everyone. For everyone. I mean, yes. because it doesn't discriminate. Correct. I mean, at all. Correct. At all. So do you think that that the epidemic is worse in rural or is it, can you, is there a measurement? I, it is not. Unfortunately, we don't have any statistics. We don't have uh, good numbers because some of those patients, they move from rural areas to the city because for them, sometimes it's easier to find um, different type of drugs in the city. Uh, but it's, it's combined. It's mm -hmm. combined. It just, it is a sad situation because we don't have the numbers to do uh, public policy in the way that we should. Mm -hmm. But you do have the numbers on what's being prescribed, right? Absolutely. And we have the numbers also in our practice. So when somebody comes to my practice and they tell me that, oh, oh, you know, I'm lecturing and they tell me that maybe that's not true, I can tell them how many patients we did last year, how many patients got this type of medications and how's the way that they did. Because in the beginning, when we jump into this multimodal um, project, we did a lot of research in our own patients. Mm -hmm. And this was no cold turkey decision. Mm -hmm. This was a decision that we took, and it took almost months preparing my staff, preparing the surgeons that they work with me, preparing my referrals, preparing the patients uh, to a point that we were able to control numbers to make phone calls for the first five to six days to our patients every day to see how they were controlling pain. Mm -hmm. So that was a very methodical process that we went through. Wow, amazing. Let me ask you a question um, because I have read a little bit about this and I'm just interested in your thought process on this. Let's say a person my age or whatever age has been prescribed for a while pain management and perhaps it's an opioid. How do you get that person that's chronically in pain to wean off of a painkiller like a Vicodin, or, and, and is Vicodin, this is hydrocodone, correct? Yeah, yeah. How do, how do you do that? Because I have heard, is that fair? What is it doing? What is it doing to your body? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know you were talking about can, you're the, the father that asked for 45 or whatever the case may be. And when I've had procedures, they've limited, obviously. But what do you say to the people that have been, for years, been on pain management? I will tell them that it may be hope in the future trying to handle this in a multimodal way. But the problem is the health insurance are not in our size. We have a lot of new procedures that we can try on our patients. But unfortunately, the insurance, they believe that these are experimental procedures and they don't want to pay for it. So these patients, unfortunately, they have been on Oxycontin. They have been on Vicodin, Hydrocodone, you name it. And, and fentanyl patches. And the body right now is addictive to that. So we need to 
work in multiple fronts. First front is trying to decrease the addiction, trying to find a clinic that they will work with this addiction and trying to titrate these medications down. Also trying to find the source of the pain. Is the pain real? Where is the pain? How we can control this pain? People, they don't want to take time on this patient. Even some of the pain doctors, and I work with multiple pain doctors because my background is mainly in TMJ pain mm -hmm. and management mm -hmm. and surgery. So I work with multiple of these doctors and some of them are wonderful. Some of them, they try, they look for these, but some of them, they just want to keep prescribing medications and right. that's it. So I think that we need to work with insurance. We need to work with addiction clinics. And by the way, being addictive to one of these medications, we don't need to see this like a, this is um, an exercise or this is something bad or something like that. It's like if you have cancer, if you have an orthopedic problem, if you need to get something removed from your body, we need to see it in different way. Again, it's attacking every single um, social status in our population race doesn't respect that. I mean, those are the reasons that we need to start working on this and trying to make this better for our patients. But we need to get help from the government, from the insurance, from um, everybody. From everyone. Exactly. And it is to educate, isn't it? Exactly. Education is the key of everything. Absolutely is. Absolutely is. Let me ask you, because I have a, uh, my daughter has TMJ and she's, um, when she was very young, they uh, wanted to have surgery and she went through therapy. I mean, she's had therapy and then now Botox injections in her jaw. Is surgery the final answer, if you would say, to someone young that has TMJ? No, not at all. So I'm I'm a TMJ surgeon. And I see a lot of patients that they come because they, they know me that I'm a TMJ specialist. Mm -hmm. But I, I tell my patients, I'm the carpenter that is going to put your bones back in the right place. But we need to understand what's going on in the facial area. A lot of the patients, what's happening is they feel pain because they have been clenching or they're having, uh, they're biting hard all the time because they don't have a good bite because maybe they have a sleep apnea and they're trying to just stop the snoring. So they clench all the time. So imagine if I had my muscles in my arms for 24 seven, just holding my, my fist all the time, really hard. My muscles in my forearm are going to hurt all the time. So it's the same situation that we're seeing right there. So in my situation, from 10 patients that I see new every week, I may do surgery in two patients. Wow. Your patients, they go for therapy mm -hmm. for non-surgical management because what we're seeing again is patients with clenching situations that even if I do surgery and even the patient has some mechanical problems in the joints and I do surgery, if they don't take care of that clenching, the patient is going to come back with a major injury in the future. Wow. So surgery is not going to fix the whole problem. So again, it is very important for the patients and for the listeners right now to understand that TMJ has multiple com multiple components. And we as normal maxillofacial surgeons, we can help them trying to make this more mechanical and make sure that everything is going to work better for, for them as a mechanical thing. That's amazing. I love hearing that because we as a family thought that surgery was just the end all end all. And my daughter is 23 and she gets very frustrated, but she does clench it. She has a you know night guard. She does all that. She's just like, maybe I should just get the surgery. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> you're not going to decide. She needs a thin approach. That's what mm -hmm. she needs. Yeah. And the other thing is like everything in, in life. If you want to have a knee surgery, you're going to look for the best or one of the best orthopedic surgeons in town. 
And it's not just because we're all maxillofacial surgeons, all of us, we can, we can do TMJ surgery. Mm -hmm. So we need to find somebody that is well versatile with the newest techniques and different techniques to make sure that everything's going to work. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to actually destroy the patient. I mean, that is amazing. That is the best advice. So I always ask in every industry, um, especially the medical field, how did COVID affect the opioid epidemic? It has been horrible. So President Obama and President Trump, they actually were the main spearheads trying to decrease this epidemic. President Obama started with that, and then President Trump was leading this with his wife and with Chris Christie, who was appointed as a opioid start. And unfortunately, when um, COVID attacked us, we lost the battle. So they actually, the opioid, the opioid epidemic was coming down, and then during COVID, went up at least 30 to 35%. So it destroyed everything because everybody was at home, they were depressed. They were looking for medications. We couldn't go anywhere, so we prescribed things. We couldn't see the patients. So all patients in pain, let's send them some pain medications and things like that. And then um, everything went downhill. So all the work that the two administrations did before, um, it was it was uh, not as, as good as we were expecting to actually keep going and win the battle. I mean, both administrations too. And that is just, that, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, COVID, that just, it, you, I, I don't think we all grasp the idea of what, how it's touched so many lives. I mean, in so many ways, I mean, we had it, but then the epidemic, the, I mean, with, with, with the, I mean, the opioids, it's no, amazing. To see the numbers right now from the CDC and seeing the, the amount of, uh, uh, overdose and things like that went up 30%. Good grief. Now, so. what happens, Dr. Franco, if a physician prescribes opioids and they shouldn't? So we don't have any any good control right now. What, what's happening is the state has numbers that they can monitor regarding the amount of opioids that we're giving to our patients. And these numbers, they connect them with the DEA. So... If for some reason we see somebody that is not a pain management doctor, is not an orthopedic surgeon, is not an oral maxillofacial surgeon, is not somebody that is doing surgery that is very painful or somebody that is in the field of pain management, then they will they will look for that person in the future. But besides fines and things like that, we cannot do anything else. That's it. Yes. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Are you so proud of what you've done in this crusade? Um, I'm proud of everybody that has been helping me doing mm -hmm. this. I'm just one of the, of the, of the, I don't think the leaders, I think I'm, I'm one of the liaisons that is putting all these teams together. And, and that's the reason that is my, is my passion. I, I enjoy doing this, but um, what I'm happy is that we are actually creating the conscious of on every single health professional that we can fight pain in different ways. Mm -hmm. That's my goal and that's that's my crusade. That's your crusade. And you're doing it. I yes, mean, the, you're a teacher, you're I mean, you're a provider. I mean, you're you're brilliant obviously and um, I'm <laughs> no, just I'm, I'm just happy to know you. My goodness, <laughs> my goodness. Okay, I have a fun question for you. Go ahead. What's your favorite music you play in the operating room? Country music. What? 
not. <laughs> yes, I no. country music. Yeah. Uh-uh. Are so, you kidding me? Old school country or the new stuff? Everything, actually. I like old school better than, than for example, Keith Whitley. You're kidding. <laughs> yes, I love I love music like that. <laughs> My daughter should love this. And if I don't have country music in the OR, I get very moody. You're kidding. Yeah, so they, my residents say, let's go and find the music for Dr. Franco. So, country music. Yes. You know, my husband laughs at me because I, I'll drive somewhere, I mean, like to Austin or something, and I just don't listen to anything because I think I'm just constantly listening, listening. And so he's like, you're so weird. Well, that's beside the point. So anyway, country music, you heard it right here with Dr. Franco. Thank you so much for all you do for all of us and fighting this this epidemic of opioids. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Tiffany, for the opportunity to be with you and for, um, you know, let people know that we have different ways to fight the opioid epidemic, for some of them to have hope that things are going to get better. And also for them to understand that when you guys go to your surgeons, ask them how's the way that they're going to control their pain after surgery. Mm-hmm. And that, that, a quick question for all the listeners, the followers, the viewers, how can we eat, each of us help? How can we help? Just um, sharing the, the importance of pain control in different ways, understanding that there are different ways that we can battle this and also uh, that junkies are not junkies. Mm -hmm. Junkies are my brother, my sister, my son, Mm -hmm. my daughter, my mom. A human. Human being. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that we need to see these human beings. Absolutely. And care about each other. Exactly. 100%. Well, I appreciate you so much. Now, I know we can find you on Facebook, Instagram, your website. So I have you at DFW Oral, and here we go, maxillofacial surgery. I did it. Great. Do you know I've been practicing all day? Good. You did amazing. (laughs) I passed, right? Absolutely. 100%. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for being here. And everyone, you can follow along, and uh, you can watch us on YouTube now. You can see everything we were doing in here. And uh, everyone, follow along at Tiffany Blackman, Tiffany C. Blackman on Instagram. And and y'all, have a great day, and keep being fabulous. Fabulous.